Good morning. My name is Amy Wheeler, and I'm your host for the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. And I'm doing a solo episode today. Today, we're going to go into a topic called the lens of yoga therapy and how it differs from other healthcare professions. This is part three of a series. Part two was gifted on December 16th, 2022. It's in the 2022 season, and it's the very last episode of that season. I believe it's like episode number 33. And then part one of this talk was on October 21st. And so you might want to go back and listen to part one and part two and then part three. And the reason I think that this three-part series is so necessary is because I get asked all the time, what is the scope of practice of yoga therapy? Is it like a mini physical therapist? No, we are not. Are you trying to be a psychotherapist? No, we are not. We have our own scope of practice, and it actually has a lot to do with spirituality. And therefore, we're not trying to take over anyone else's turf. We're trying to carve out our own turf and let people know how yoga therapy can help them. Hello, everyone. My name is Marita Greenwich, and I am the Marketing and Communications Manager at the International Association of Yoga Therapists, or IAYT. IAYT has members from across 50 countries, and we've been championing yoga as a healing art and science since 1989. Our over 5,000 individual members, together with more than 150 member schools, help IAYT to support research and education in yoga. One of the ways in which we support this research and education is through our annual conference, the Symposium on Yoga Therapy and Research, affectionately known as SITAR. I am inviting you to join us for SITAR, June 15th to 17th at the Hyatt Regency in Reston, Virginia. You'll enjoy not only professional development, but also the fellowship of the yoga therapy community. We've got inspiring keynotes, dynamic workshops, and a thought-provoking panel discussion to support your learning with some of the brightest minds in the field of yoga therapy. You'll also reinvigorate yourself with daily practices and special interest groups with an in-person experience at a venue that's convenient to many exciting attractions. Early birds pricing ends May 19th. So register soon to take advantage of all these great savings. Visit sitar.org for more details and to register. I hope to see you in June. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast, and we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. The call to action in season five is that you would join us on our Monday night yoga therapy clinic, where we take families and let them do yoga therapy together. So you sign up as a household and there's maybe a month on low back pain or a month on how to work with insomnia. 
We have so many different topics coming up in the 2023 year, and we hope you and your family will join us for that Monday night yoga therapy clinic. See the show notes for more information. All right, let's get into today's episode. Now, let me start today's episode with a little story. Unexpectedly, last month, I had to go home for two weeks to help my dad with some health problems that he was having. And while I was there, I had the opportunity as a 50-year-old woman to watch myself and the emotions that came up during those two weeks, to watch the habitual patterns that emerged from those emotions, and to kind of be the observer or the witness and watch myself in this movie, if you will, on the screen, doing old patterns of behavior that I don't do when I'm living here in California. And I, for one of the first times, was able to step back and, and watch it unfold and be like, oh, when this trigger happens, this is the emotion I feel. And then I do X, Y, Z behavior. And for me, that involves eating sugar, <laughs> that there's something about going home and feeling like the youngest of six children, feeling like, you know, I'm the baby of the family, some thoughts of, well, I deserve a treat and I get to be on vacation and make life a little sweeter. So I'll just run down to the bakery and get that lemon bar, which isn't a bad thing. But when you have too many lemon bars, it can be a bad thing. Feelings of hurt over family things that tend to come up when we go home as an adult. Oh, I think I'll soothe that or pacify that with an almond bar. (laughs) <laughs> and so on and so forth. You get the idea. And, you know, for a long time, I just went home and ate the sugar. And then, then there was a few years where I was kind of like, oh, I think I see this pattern. I don't think I want to do that, but I had to wrestle with myself not to. And this time, you know what I did? I allowed myself to do the behavior as long as I examined what I was doing, as long as I didn't do it mindlessly. And I think that was really smart because that took it away from wrestling. No, you shouldn't have that. Why are you doing that? Shame on you, which is so unproductive into, well, let's go have the lemon bar or the almond bar from your favorite bakery down the street, but let's be mindful about it. And let's look at the feelings going into the bakery. Let's look at the sensations and the reward systems that are kind of set up while standing there in line. And then let's really mindfully enjoy the lemon bar or the almond bar. And then let's see what the post-digestive effect is, right? So I entered into it with this mode of observation to try to figure out my pattern, which I'm sure does happen here in California too. But I think this really sets up our episode today about how is yoga therapy different than some of these other professions and what it really boils down to for me and the way that I teach yoga therapy is that I have this precious opportunity as a human being in this lifetime, I've been given this human birth to do good work in the world, to be the highest version of myself, to really come home to myself, to care for myself, to love myself, 
which is me having a spiritual connection with me, but also me having a spiritual connection with others and knowing that when I eat too much sugar, I actually don't feel very well. My joints hurt. I get a little crabby. I might be a little snappy. My husband tells me I can be a little mean if I have too much sugar. So it really inhibits my relationships at times and it's not serving my highest self. And again, this is not about not eating sugar, right? You, you could insert any habitual pattern, anger, watching TV too much, you know, whatever your pattern is, go for it. But mine happens to be sugar. And so just to say that it's a spiritual connection with myself and others that I desire and I want to live from my highest self. And I don't want to live in a way that I'm just reacting to whatever it is that's going on in my life that's stressful for me. I actually want to have a choice about how I feel and my behaviors. And if I decide to have a lemon bar or an almond bar, I really want to not feel guilty or shameful. I want to be like, heck yeah, today's the day. Let's do this. Not, oh my gosh, I have to go get one because I'm not feeling well. And I know that's going to make me feel better. I think you get the idea. So what we're talking about today, this how the lens of yoga therapy is different from some of these other healthcare modalities, it really boils down to that. How can I live in this life as the highest version of myself? And I personally am aiming to do that. Not that I have to be a perfectionist, not that I have to be on all the time, but what I do value is staying connected to myself. And I know sometimes when I participate in a lot of unconscious behaviors, I don't feel connected to myself and then I don't feel connected to others. So that's really what this is about. Now, I originally gave parts of this talk to the Society of Yoga Practitioners, TSYP in the UK in the spring of 2022. So I'd like to honor them. Both they and myself are students of the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandram, KYM tradition in Chennai, India. So that is where these teachings come from. And I am an educator. I do spiral teaching. You will hear the same thing with different aspects to it over and over and over again. They say when we teach didactically, meaning I just kind of lecture at you, you might remember 5%. So it's okay to hear things more than once. And if you've listened to part one and part two, you may be like, oh yeah, okay. She said that before, but now this time it landed for me. All right. So let's start with this word vasana, which is this unconscious feeling that arises when we get in certain situations Maybe we visit a town that we've been to before. Maybe we come into contact with our brothers or our sisters or our siblings or our parents. Anything can kind of set a, a vasana off, meaning last time I was home, I found myself eating sugar. And this time when I'm home, this unconscious feeling arises that I think I want to go to the bakery, right? So the, the vasana is an emotional imprint. It's not actually going to the bakery. That's a samskara, but the emotional imprint of I'm home, I deserve a treat, I'm on vacation, or I'm stressed out. That unconscious feeling that's arising in me is the vasana, 
the samskara is the habitual pattern of actually going over to the bakery and getting a coffee and a lemon bar. That's the action. So a lot of times people get confused. What's the vasana? What's the samskara? But think of it as the vasana is a feeling or a sensation, oftentimes that we're not aware of, that's driving the samskara or the the behavior. So because these vasanas are oftentimes subliminal, we don't even know that they're there. We just see ourselves doing the action and shame and blame ourselves instead of thinking, well, you know, where did that vasana come from? Was there an earlier time when this kind of emotional imprint got stuck to me? And yes, I think there was. I think a lot of times in my childhood, as my father was a pastor, I got to go a lot of weddings, a lot of coffee hours. I I really had a great time at these socially wonderful places where everybody was having fun. We were hugging each other and playing basketball and eating cookies off the tables. So I think that vasana of I'm going to have fun or I'm going to reward myself leading to a cookie or a bar or some sugar that was set very, very early on in my little nervous system and microbiome. So it's not always that linear. You can't always figure out what the original vasana is. You may have buried it due to trauma. And the truth is we don't have to know where it comes from. We don't know have to know the cause of the vasana. And oftentimes we probably won't, but we do have to recognize the feelings and sensations that are leading to this action that we may not want to continue to do. And again, this isn't about not eating sugar, right? For a lot of people, sugar is just fine for them. But for me, it isn't having the effects in my life that I want. So another aspect of this that we could look at from Indian philosophy, if you're interested and you don't have to, is that each one of us has imprints that are basically stuck to us from previous times, could even be a past life. And in some actions, we call that karma. The action that was taken previously, either in this life or a previous life, there's like a storage system of these karmic actions that we took. And because we've got that storage system, which is housed in our subtle body, our pranic body, when certain people show up, those vasanas get triggered, right? So the karma is in the storage bin and then a certain person shows up and boom, the vasana is triggered, which then triggers possibly the samskara or the, the action, the behavior. It could also be a place. I know every time I go to Europe, I can't help but think of Milfjör, which is a beautiful pastry that when I was 16 and traveling through Europe, every bakery I could find with Milfjör, I would go and get the Milfjör. So maybe a place could trigger it. I'm certain if I dropped myself into Europe right now, I would go Milfjör hunting. It could be a situation. It could be every time you get into a professional situation at work and a colleague does XYZ, it infuriates you and you end up yelling at people and getting fired, right? There's many people, places, and situations that could take this 
karma out of the storage system and boom, create a feeling or a sensation, which leads to an action. So that's one thing we don't really think about much is what karma is stored up in my little storage system and what things are going to trigger that to emerge in the here and now. Another piece of this puzzle is smriti, a memory of the past, right? So you remember the milfior, and that kind of can trigger my current vasana and samskara. The vasana being, I'm on vacation, I deserve a treat. The action being, I'm at the bakery in Europe getting the piece of milfior, <laughs> right? So just that memory can also be something that kind of gets the dominoes falling one after another, after another. And the answer to all of this, which is what I discovered when I was home a couple of weeks ago is self-awareness, self-reflection and meditation are the keys to breaking the ties that bond. Now, this is very different than what I had done previous trips home, where I just through sheer willpower told myself, you are not allowed to eat the lemon bars and the almond bars. It just occurred to me, I'm probably making you all really hungry right now. <laughs> but to make a long story short, the pushing away actually can make it worse, right? And punish you and shame you and blame you. What is wrong with you? How come you can't stop smoking? How come you can't stop eating? How come you can't stop watching porn? How come you can't stop shopping? How come you can't stop yelling at your kids? Just shaming ourselves has been proven scientifically to never change behavior. If, if, if anything, it makes the behavior even more often and more intense. So when we say the answer is self-awareness, self-reflection and meditation, this is where the lens of yoga therapy comes in. We are not doing cognitive behavioral therapy. We're not doing CBT. We're not doing any of these modern psychological methods. We're doing yoga philosophy that's 2,000 to 5,000 years old that predates any of our modern healthcare. And again, it has that spiritual component. We call this self-awareness, self-reflection and meditation svadhyaya, sva self dhyaya which is kind of a meditation or looking inward to yourself. And it's through pranayama practices, through asana practices, through meditation practices, through chanting, through bhavana or visualization that we can break these binds. So one last thing I'll say before we really get into the heart of this is that oftentimes the karma in the storage bin and then the vasana or the emotional imprint, and then the samskara, the behavior that we do, they're not linear. And it's really hard to see the patterns. And this is another reason why self-reflection, self-awareness and meditation are great because we just do those every day. We just do a daily practice of meditation every day. And over time, that breaks those bonds. And we don't have to know what the cause is. We don't have to see it in a linear fashion. We just do our daily practice. And somehow, something inside of us begins to shift. 
Now, those of you that are watching this episode on YouTube, the Optimal State YouTube channel, you can see something on the screen that says a quote from TKV Deskachar on meditation. It says, meditation is to prepare the mind for its best possible state at any given time or place. So it's almost like preventative medicine for these vasanas and these samskaras. And one of the things that's quite different about yoga therapy meditation is it's not like Zen meditation where you're trying to quiet the mind. It's not like Vipassana meditation where you're kind of watching your mind or your breath. We actually have like replacement therapy, meaning if I can find out what the feeling or sensation that I'm feeling is, or even the thought that I'm having, I can meditate on something to replace that thought, to prepare my mind for my best possible state. So for example, if I've been experiencing depression, I might meditate on the sun. The sun is my object of meditation, the qualities of the sun, how the sun makes me feel. So I really think meditation from a yoga therapy perspective is a whole different type of meditation that most people have never heard of. When we say to people, well, let us choose the object of meditation that is appropriate for you and individualized to you. That's strange for most people. They're like, well, don't I just need to close my eyes and be mindful? It's like, nope, that's not how we do meditation. We are individualizing the practice to find the best meditation that's going to create a new foundation for you to overcome the karma, the vasana, the samskara. So we have this lens of yoga therapy that has eight limbs. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutra chapter two, we have the eight limbs of yoga. Number one is our yamas, social disciplines. Number two is our niyama, which are personal disciplines. Number three is asana or postures. Number four is pranayama or breath regulation. Number five is pratyahara, which is the sensory withdrawal. And then six, seven, and eight are the process of meditation that we're referring to. Number six is Tarana, seven is Dhyana, eight is Samadhi. And when you put six, seven, and eight together, we call that Samyama. So just to point out, I'm not going to go deeply into these, but I am going to say that it is through meditation on a daily basis that we can clean out our mind of the vasanas and replace those old not so helpful vasanas with a new vasana, right? So for me, that might look something like when I go home, I am on vacation and I feel like I deserve a reward. I'm depleted. I'm exhausted. I flop off the airplane. I'm home. Ah, right. That's kind of the, the vasana that isn't that helpful to me. My replacement meditation might be something that helps me to understand that maybe in my everyday life, I don't want to work so hard that when I show up at home, I am depleted and exhausted. So maybe we give me a meditation around a more sustainable lifestyle. 
where I don't get into those places where I'm so exhausted and my blood sugar is so low that I'm just running to the bakery, right? So if I did that type of meditation given to me by my mentor or my teacher to help me build a new sustainable lifestyle that doesn't have me running for the sugar, that would create a new pattern for me. And so this is what we mean by yoga therapy. Now, these last three limbs are interesting because, you know, in the sixth limb, dharana, we just have to build concentration and focus on the new thing that we're linking to in our meditation. And for, for me in this silly example that I'm giving you today would be creating a sustainable lifestyle. And you'll be happy to know that I'm actually getting very, very close to this. I feel like, wow, I'm pretty much doing it over many years of, of trying. And then, you know, over time, I wouldn't have to focus or concentrate so much. I could just kind of start to be it. That would be my dhyanam number seven. And then eventually it would just become second nature. I wouldn't even have to think about it. This is my life. It is sustainable samadhi or absorption. So, you know, just keeping in mind that Patanjali thousands of years ago laid this out for us. And the reason that Patanjali, which might be a person or a group of people, why did they say meditation is the best way? Because it requires this self-awareness, you have to cultivate self-discipline. And over time, you're doing a self-reorganization from the past version of yourself that is participating in not-so-helpful behaviors. You are reorganizing your psyche, your behaviors, maybe even your gunas or the energies of your body. You're reorganizing yourself into a new version of yourself that's more helpful. And if you kind of take that reorganization thought going forward, think about 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, if I've still managed to curb all of this sugar eating, you know, to not get diabetes would be so wonderful. <laughs> I would love that. Everybody in my family gets diabetes. I don't want to get that. Right. So this reorganization is for today, but it's also for that trajectory into the future. And this is what we mean by, we say this type of meditation or reorganization can create lasting changes that are deep in our heart and in our psyche that have predictable outcomes for the future. I will suffer much less if I don't get diabetes in the future. It sounds so easy. Well, I'll just start meditating every day and I'll have my teacher write me a meditation on a more sustainable lifestyle that I'm not getting so depleted. And, you know, it, it all sounds good. Yes, do it. But it's hard work, I guess, is what I'm going to say. And I think the reason is that when we go through this process of purifying the mind, we run into obstacles. So, for example, if I'm you know, bovinizing or visualizing a sustainable life. And what would that look like? And how could I get my workday to five or six hours instead of eight to nine hours? And how could I get to bed at nine o'clock? And how could I hydrate myself properly? Of course, it, you know, I would love to do all those things and I'm really working hard on those things, but there 
are times where we fall off the wagon. So when we start this reorganization slash meditation practice daily, I might have a really bad day at work one day. Maybe one of our faculty quits or something and and I'm left in a real bind. Boom, I run into the wall and I go back to my old ways, right? I think I'll go have a coffee and some sugar to settle down. So we can expect that, that in this process, before we get to the other side where it's just kind of become second nature to create and sustain this new lifestyle, that we're going to hit that wall over and over and over again and have to trust the process that if we can be mindful, if we can watch ourselves and be that witness or that observer and watch ourselves suffering and going through this process, that we will come out the other side. And that's what I did this time at home. I still ate the lemon bar. I still had the almond bar, but I did it consciously. I watched the before, during, and after effects, and I learned. I I actually learned something about myself that will help me for the future. So we don't have to use willpower. We have to use conscious behavior, which means we have to do a daily practice, a meditative daily practice every day to kind of create that foundation or that fertile ground so that when stuff comes up in our life, and all hell breaks loose, and we end up running into the wall and going back to our old ways, that we have this reservoir of calm, alert mind to draw from so that we can step back and be the observer. Some people would say, well, this is a lot of work. And you know, maybe it is, but what are the options? This is what I love about the lens of yoga therapy. It's worked for people for thousands of years. And so why wouldn't it work for us? And a lot of the health behavior change that we see in modern healthcare isn't working any better. We see a lot of diabetics who are getting kidney dialysis, needing to give shots every day with insulin, and they're still eating too much sugar, right? So I'm not saying it never works, but it's worth a try to consider this option that I'm talking about. So we've talked a little bit about the vasanas and the samskaras, but let's dig a little more deeply into the samskaras and and how those are set in motion. And again, samskara is like a habitual pattern, could be conscious, could be unconscious. You could just find yourself smoking or shopping and be like, whoa, wait a minute. Or you could (laughs) completely be oblivious and then get the credit card and be like, oh my gosh, what did I do? (laughs) Right. But usually these samskaras are triggered from something in the past, some kind of imprint that happened in the past. And believe it or not, our intentions make a difference. So In the past, whatever intentions we had back then make a difference for now. So let's go back to my example here of a few years ago, I I realized, wow, I'm eating more sugar when I'm at home. And I tried to stop myself from eating sugar. That intention matters because the intention to shame myself, blame myself, call myself weak, tell myself I failed, 
that gets stuck in the ball of wax that moves forward together. And this is a really important point. So many of us have tried every diet in the world and failed. And that failure, that shame is carried into the next opportunity to go on the diet. That's why I don't like to do diets, right? Because after not having a good experience or so many times, next thing I know, I, I have that Mm, residual imprint coming forward. So, you know, we might need to really examine that also and not call it a diet and not think of it as a diet. You know, recently I've been doing a really cool thing with my nutrition. That's all about eating foods that build your microbiome. So fermented foods, lots of fiber, lots of liquids, lots of fruits and vegetables. And it's a whole different mindset. It's not about losing weight. It's about getting a healthy microbiome. And somehow with that perspective change, I'm not carrying forward all of the blame and the shame and the punishment that I have from past things. I'm just thinking, feed yourself, nourish yourself, build that microbiome. And it's a completely different intention and a, a different feeling and sensation in my body. Another thing to keep in mind when we have these triggers that cause us to go into our old habitual patterns is the nature of my mood or my energy level or the nature of my mind at the moment I experience the trigger matters. So one day I could be having a very calm, stable day at work and I have the trigger and I can be mindful. I can say, oh, there's my trigger. Hmm. Here comes the craving. Wow. That's a very interesting connection. And I might go to a practice and it moves on through me. But another day I might be really upset already at work and something bad happened that I'm just so angry about. And that same trigger comes along, that same vasana comes along and boom, I'm going to have a completely different trajectory for the day where I go unconscious and go ahead and do my samskara. So that's again, why meditation is so important because we want to prepare our mind to be in its best possible form for when those things come up and they will, it's not if it's when, and that goes back to sustainable lifestyle. Another thing that kind of sets the behaviors, the samskaras in motion is how much support or lack of support do you have for this new thing that you want to create? So, you know, my new thing is building my microbiome. How much support do I have? Number one, my health insurance company is paying for it. Awesome. I love that. Number two, I have a personal coach. She's amazing. She texts me every day. Number three, my husband is on board. He's at Costco right now getting everything I need for my microbiome build. <laughs> you know, those types of things. Now, what if I had to pay for it all by myself and I couldn't afford it? What if I didn't have a coach in the program? What if my husband was constantly trying to get me to eat sweets and sabotage me? That matters right? So I think we call this the social determinants of health that 
if we can, we, we want to surround ourselves with supportive people, places, and things. And we're not in control of all of that. Some things we're in control of, but a lot of things we're not in control of because of the way society is set up. Very few healthcare companies are doing preventative medicine like this, where they're helping us to build our microbiome. Most healthcare companies are looking to catch you on the back end when you've got diabetes because they want to make the money on kidney dialysis, right? So it's it's something that our society probably needs to shift. It, it, we aren't there yet, but just to recognize that this support is not entirely in my control, right? If I'm married to a man for 20 plus years and he decides not to be supportive of my microbiome building, I'm not going to divorce that man. At least I'm not. <laughs> Some might. How am I going to have to work within that? Right? So that support means a lot. Now, when we're comparing this lens of yoga therapy, using meditation, using self-awareness, using these spiritual principles to reorganize the deepest layers of ourself, we do it quite differently. We do this replacement therapy. We say, okay, you've got these problems. We acknowledge that. We accept that. You are seen. You are heard. And are you ready to make a change and go to the next level? In Western psychology, unfortunately, and you know, I, I actually have gone to quite a bit of psychotherapy myself and still do when I need that support. Sometimes they allow us to dig around in the mud and learn more about the mud. There's almost a feeling of we have to dig into the past and figure out what happened, how it happened, what's the cause of why it happened. You know, like spending months or years talking about the problem instead of moving towards the solution, which is this daily meditation practice designed especially for you that is appropriate for you. A yoga therapist will design the meditation practice and co-negotiate that. There's no diagnosis involved. Whereas a Western psychological person might say, let's go in and, and resolve your trauma. Let's do some trauma therapy and let's experience your trauma a little bit. And let's talk about your trauma. We're not, we're not doing that. And it, again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I just want to compare and contrast because I think there are a lot of psychologists out there that might say, are you trying to practice psychology? And I say, no. And then I say, when, when they tell me, well, I'm a psychologist who has a 200 hour yoga teacher training, therefore I can do yoga therapy. I say to them, are you able to assess from the lens of yoga philosophy, are you able to create a spiritual or a secular spiritual meditation practice based on particular objects of meditation outlined in the ancient texts that's appropriate for this person in their time of life, whatever it is they're going through, their cognitive ability, their emotional stability? Are, are you able to design a very specific meditation practice for that person. And oftentimes the answer is no, I haven't been trained to do that. Right. And we, as yoga therapists, we spend 
hours and hours and years learning how to do that. So one is not better than the other, but I think we have to acknowledge that there are differences. So a couple other things that I think are a little bit interesting that you might also find interesting, you know, in yoga therapy, we do this co-assessment or what I call a co-negotiation. We have no diagnosis of something called the gunas and how the gunas create the way we think. And I'm not going to go heavily into the gunas because it's too much. <laughs> Take a yoga therapy course, but it's just to say that the perception of reality that we have is dependent on how much sleep we've had, what we've had to eat, how much stress we're under. The exact same event could happen. And one day we perceive it as horrible. And the next day we perceive it as not a big deal. Yoga and yoga therapy takes that into account when we're trying to write these meditation practices. We also know that our, our senses, the way we see things, hear things, taste things are different on different days. And this goes back to yoga philosophy. I mean, what I taste one day with my coffee, the exact same coffee made the exact same way could taste different to me another day. Isn't that interesting? So even how our senses function, it's a fluctuation and we acknowledge that and we work around that or work with it. Also, how our thoughts flow through our minds. Different days, our mind is different. We might feel more stable one day. We might feel more unstable one day. We might wake up with anxiety one morning. We might wake up feeling joyful one morning. So acknowledging that our state of mind is in constant flux. It's not like you have this problem, you've been diagnosed with it, and that is how your mind functions. We don't do that. We look at the fluctuations of the mind and how how we can get more comfortable with the fluctuations of our mind, how we can recognize, oh, my mind is doing this today. My mind is telling me I'm a terrible person. I don't have to think I'm a terrible person. I could replace that with a better thought. So that's what I love about yoga therapy is there's no diagnosis. It's looking at what is in this moment, which again is a very spiritual concept and recognizing that within us, we have the potential to shift our minds and we have a toolbox specifically breathing techniques, meditation that we can use appropriately for that individual to kind of reset your mind in the middle of the day or reformat completely, giving you a different baseline to work with and learning how to use different breathing techniques to help people get up or down. I think of it as like a dial you can turn up or down on your nervous system. So again, we get a couple years of training in how to create that dial for the nervous system and therefore how the mind functions. Also, we acknowledge in yoga that different people can look at the exact same thing and perceive it differently. You know, 
a lot of times I think in, in Western allopathic medicine or in psychology, or maybe even in physical therapy, people are agreeing here is what our field agrees is the reality. When you have XYZ happening, it is this diagnosis. We actually don't agree with that. We acknowledge that every single person is so unique and that every person's perception of reality is valid for that person. It may not be my reality, but how can we help them function better within their reality? And their reality might shift over time, but they are not othered, right? It's not, you are the other, I'm going to fix you. It is, okay, here's how your mind is perceiving. Here's how your senses are functioning. Here's how your thoughts are flowing through you at this time. What is the breathing and meditation practice I can give you in this moment to help you with your suffering? Next week, it might be different. The following week, it might be different. So we don't just give someone a practice and then that's it. And we go off and we never see them again. We are tracking them over time and refining the practices and shifting it and changing it depending on where their state is and where they want to go. So the goal, the long-term goal that we're trying to get people towards, again, is a very spiritual principle, is that we want to get them and want ourselves to know who I am, know who we are, know why am I here in this world? How can I be of service in this world? How can I do my part in a sustainable way that allows my nervous system to feel calm and alert most of the time. We call this being sattvic, calm and alert. And from that, how can I feel joyful? That map that I just said, that is a spiritual principle. Who am I? Why am I here? How can I be of service? How can I live a sustainable life being of service? And how can I keep my nervous system and my mind in its best possible state most of the time so that I can feel in balance and feel joyful? I love that. I love helping people do that. That's what I get to do for a living, <laughs> right? So we, we want to keep our eye on the ball, which is we are going to help people have a coherent life. We're going to help them have what we call salutogenesis, right? It's not pathogenesis. It's salutogenesis. We're not fixing a problem. We're focused on how can I feel good more of the time? And how can I be self-aware when I start to not feel so great and then do something to self-regulate? And again, this isn't always easy because of these social determinants of health where we may be living in a situation that's unsustainable. We may be having partners and friends and family that are not supportive. We may not have the money to do the things we want to do. We may be overworked with three jobs. I mean, I'm not saying that, boom, you can snap your fingers and become self-aware and self-regulated. However, we want that as the goal, and it may take years to unpack and get there, but don't forget about the goal. Eventually, through this self-awareness and reorganization and regulation of the nervous system, we do 
have the opportunity to become more like the observer of our life. We become more like the observer of our lives and the vasanas or the colorings of your mind that are left over from past events. Maybe we don't jump right in quite so quickly. Maybe we can sit back like I was able to do at home this last time and say, yeah, I'm feeling a little stressed. I'm on vacation. I deserve a break. And I'm choosing to have the lemon bar because I love the lemon bar. And I'm going to enjoy it to the fullest and not beat myself up over that. And then I'm going to see how that made me feel. Did it make my joints hurt? Did it make me crabby? I don't know. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I'm the observer of my life instead of just reacting like a pinball machine. Yeah. So this is the end of this part three of the lens of yoga therapy and how it's different and and why it's a spiritual practice based around things like breathing and meditation, not just quiet mind meditation, but the type of meditation that gets you going in the direction that you need to go. That's appropriate for you, designed by your teacher or mentor or yoga therapist that helps you move towards that salutogenesis, that feeling of being in balance, feeling light, feeling expansive, feeling free. All humans deserve that. All of us deserve that. And that's why I think yoga therapy has the potential to change the world. Now, if you want some help with this process, we have developed a mobile app called the Optimal State app, which is on iPhone, App Store, as well as Android App Store. We've taken about a year to work out the bugs. We actually released it a year ago, and we're very, very close to having all the bugs worked out. And we are starting to add classes to that app so that you could take classes with us. There's a whole lot of exciting things coming up that I hope you'll give it a try. There's a free version and a paid version. And over the next few years, we really want to build this app and help people kind of monitor and track themselves through the lens of yoga and Ayurveda, through the lens of the gunas. It's the unique app in that it's tracking through the gunas, giving you real-time results and ideas of how you can shift yourself to feel more in balance. So I invite you to go and check that out. And thank you for being with us here on the Yoga Therapy Hour. And I love these solo episodes, but next week we'll be back with another guest. So have a great week. Thank you. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.